Hello, I'm Annabelle Lee, and welcome back to another episode of the Talking Classical podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Davina Clark, a violinist based in London who specialises in historically informed performance practice and Baroque music. She's also passionate about bringing classical music to a wider audience through projects such as her podcast, The Classical Corner, and a video series in collaboration with the Connaught Hotel entitled Musical Mixology which aims to explain different aspects of classical music to a cocktail drinking audience. Her debut solo album, Sweet Stillness, is available to stream, download or purchase from wherever you like to get your music. This is an all-handle programme featuring the acclaimed British soprano Mary Bevan as well as a specially formed ensemble. We talk about some of these projects in the podcast as well as Davina's journey into historically informed performance practice. This is a really informative conversation with someone who is right at the forefront of the new generation of early music performers. Why don't you start off by telling us a bit about yourself and your journey into music? Okay, well, Annabelle, it's so, so lovely to see you here today. And I'm absolutely delighted to be coming on the podcast. My name's Davina Clark. I am a violinist and I actually specialise in historical performance, so historically informed performance and Baroque music. So I've been on this journey now probably for about um, 15 years. I started the violin at the age of three, like many of us, started an instrument very young and did the whole journey through actually modern training. But it was only actually when I left university and started freelancing in London that I really felt like something was actually missing and I didn't feel fully satisfied with um, what I was really achieving musically and I also grew up at the same time as playing the violin as actually a singer as well a soprano so I'd always loved early music I got a choral scholarship to Cambridge I I, I loved you know um, Bird, Talis, Palestrina, Purcell, Handel things like that and I suddenly thought, hang on a minute, the strings sound totally different in these recordings. And obviously I'd learned a lot about music from, from the Baroque and Renaissance period, but I'd never really delved into the whole performance practice side of things. And it was only then really in my early 20s that I realised that there was a whole other route that I could go down called historically informed performance. So I I sort of found this out and actually contacted somebody that I knew that was a violinist who actually uh, was a Baroque violinist and she gave me some lessons and I enrolled in Dartington for a summer school which was complete sort of throw myself into it never done it before borrowed a violin borrowed a Baroque violin and Baroque bow did that and then thought right I'm going to audition for the Royal Academy to do a master's taught myself and then got a scholarship there and that's sort of not the rest is history, but I learned with Rachel Podger and Simon Standage there, had an amazing time. And from there, I ended up in the world of historically informed performance. And I've never been happier. I absolutely adore it. And for me, I'm sure this might be another one of your questions, but for me, it's just, I love it so much because everybody is so invested in what we're doing. It's so niche and so particular, but it's always so fresh and vibrant and no matter what age anybody is that's doing it we all come at it with such fresh ears and eyes and 
brains really and there's just so much excitement on how to interpret this music slightly differently so that's that's sort of my whistle stop whirlwind journey into music fantastic so you said that you trained in modern violin but you said that you'd always had a real passion for early music from a young age so what was it particularly about early music and historically informed performance that you felt most attracted to and why did you want to go down that route? I think for me, talking very simply about music from the Baroque and Renaissance period, as a young child or um, as a teenager, I loved listening to a lot of choral music. So I became obsessed with things like the Talis Scholars and the Sixteen. And I think for me, my voice was quite, as a soprano is a very early voice, not much vibrato, fairly straight. So I had always start, you know, sung music from that period. I'm not singing Verdi operas, it's more kind of Handel and Purcell and things like that. But for me, what attracted me was listening to those recordings by the 16, etc, was the purity of the sound. And I know a lot of that's to do really with the writing of, of this, you know, beautiful homophonic writing of the Renaissance period. But then taking it a step further when I got a little bit more learned in in the subject, I think it's just, it's a different sound world for me. I think play on gut strings is so exciting. It's a very earthy, for those listeners who don't know, it's a very earthy, not raw sound, but it's very rich, but also a very wide colour palette, lots of beautiful different tones. And in a way, you have to work harder, I think, as an instrumentalist on these instruments. It's no mean feat playing on gut strings. It looks exactly the same as a normal violin, but the strings look a bit different. But you have to work twice as hard, actually, just to get a good sound out of it. But that makes it even more rewarding. And when you hit that sweet spot of, you know, the right, it's like, I don't know, hitting a tennis ball right in the centre of the racket or hitting, teeing off and hitting golf right in the centre of the club and you just think like, oh, that's an amazing feeling. When you're on that beautiful, uh, basically it's like riding a wave, I suppose. And once you can get into that sound world, for me, there's no going back. And it's so amazing being around like-minded people who are all playing on these amazing instruments that were built in the Brock period and or at least copies of that and that we're all on the same wavelength and wanting the same out of this journey really. Amazing so you've already talked about some of the technical aspects of um, playing on gut strings so you both you, you play on both historical and modern violins so I wondered are you comfortable switching between both instruments or do you find are there any other challenges alternating between both whether that's stylistically or whether that's a technical thing or more of a a setup well there are several things so when I first started playing the baroque violin I found it actually very difficult switching between two violins the setup was very different so usually on a baroque violin you don't have a chin rest or really a shoulder rest Um, the fingerboard is a little bit fatter it's a little bit shorter 
obviously you've got the bow which is different but that's that for me was not a problem at all for me it was this constant switching between modern baroque modern baroque on a day-to-day basis and i found that really really hurt my neck it really started to injure me because of this different setup i think you know having been trained as a modern violinist your muscles are built in your hand and arm in a certain way and suddenly you're using different muscles basically especially to hold the violin you know in the baroque period people wore a lot of thick ruffs and ruffles and big clothing and that in itself acted as a shoulder rest so now it's a bit bonkers that we come to this and say oh well they didn't have shoulder rest so let's not use it well i mean if you're just wearing a t-shirt it's sort of not really going to work for you like that so i found that very very difficult and then To combat that, or to counteract that, I decided that I wanted to have the same setup in both modern and Baroque violin, basically. So in order to do that, I use a chamois leather kind of rolled up as my shoulder rest. And then I don't use a chin rest on either modern or Baroque violin. So for me, the switchover between two instruments, regardless of the strings, that doesn't really make a difference, is very, very simple. When I'm playing more advanced repertoire, not only on the modern violin, but also on gut strings. So I do a play in two orchestras, but with Sir John Elliott Gardner, English Baroque soloist, and the other one, Orchestre Révolutionnaire et Romantique. And that orchestra specialises in romantic music, but on gut strings, on original instruments. So we do a lot of music by Berlioz and Beethoven. And obviously, as the writing style becomes more and more adventurous, what they're requiring and expecting from the players is more and more. And it's almost a little bit like trying to... Basically, what I was going to go with this is that I then do use a shoulder rest for um, much more advanced music because I need to get up the instrument. I need to get up the fingerboard. In Baroque music, you're usually in really first to fourth position. It's not really going to go beyond that. The music is technically difficult, don't get me wrong, but it's the range the scope, the range of the violin is not is not as large as it is in modern music or certainly in later romantic music. So for that, I do use a shoulder rest. But generally speaking, I try to keep the same setup between my modern and Baroque violin. And therefore, it means I can swap between them with such ease and I don't get daunted by it. The other thing is that I also, I think it's changed since I've been involved in historically informed performance. I've changed my outlook on how to interpret music as well. So if I'm playing Mozart symphonies with, let's say, the Academy of Ancient Music, and then I'm asked to go and play Mozart symphonies with the London Symphony Orchestra, I find it quite difficult because the the mental approach to music from this period is not the same in modern orchestras as it is to speciality period orchestras. But I would say that I don't change how I interpret it. I still come at it from a historically informed stance, basically. And there are a lot of wonderful modern groups who do play on modern instruments, but they interpret, they they have the understanding of what was uh, required in in the Baroque era or classical era, and they can strip it back down to the, the basics again. And also I've noticed that many of the modern symphony orchestras actually bring in specialist historical conductors and also the strings, the the string sections actually play on gut strings now and they have Baroque bows too, which I think really shows how much the times have 
changed and how much perceptions I think about historically informed performance have really changed haven't they? Absolutely I mean it was really the you know pioneers in the sort of 50s and 60s that sort of made this all come back to life and now I would and in those days it was kind of pretty geeky and not that fashionable. Socks and sandals. So socks and sandals, brown rice and everything else Um, and now it is so cool to be different to and and the historically it's so exactly that and that's what it's historically informed performance and it is hip it's cool and it's pretty fashionable now to be involved in this in this world and I'd say that it's a wonderful world to be involved in because we've got a lot of young people coming in who are excited but then at the same time they're coexisting along these original pioneers who who were in the original movement who are still alive and playing people like Simon Standage all all of these original um players basically who who were in the movement when it started out and it's wonderful to be able to learn so much from them and to see how how the movement has progressed really i feel actually so grateful every day that i found this world um I feel so excited every day to go to work and to be able to create this amazing music or interpretation of this beautiful music with like-minded colleagues. And I think one of the unique things actually about, you know, historically informed performance is that it doesn't feel like a job. You know, we've really chosen this. We've all done that extra speciality. It's like any profession, if you are a doctor and then you're a surgeon and then you specialize in that then you specialize even further and further and further obviously you're really passionate about it and then to be surrounded by people who have all done extra 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 specialities in historically informed performance it's just really exciting yeah absolutely absolutely i want to come on to your album the nine German arias congratulations I had a little listen to it I absolutely loved it I've got to say I wasn't too familiar with the nine German arias apart from one aria but I was really struck actually by you know the violin writing and coming from a vocal background yourself to me the violin is almost like a second voice that complements the soprano lines and also each aria essentially they're nine the capo arias aren't they but each one is it's almost like a mini opera in a way and the emotion of each one is so direct you know exactly what Handel is trying to get across in each one um whether that's stillness joy you know the imitation of the waves tell me more about these wonderful wonderful arias and how you how this project came about absolutely so this is my debut album it's called sweet stillness it came about really because I had been wanting to, to make an album for years. I've, I've played on hundreds of albums, as we all have. But I really wanted to make my mark as a musician. And it just seemed like the right time. Um, it's, it was actually really the pandemic that kind of brought everything to life. I actually finally had time to just get my head around it. And then I just thought, if, if not now, then when? Mary Bevan is a great friend of mine, very close friend. Um, we get on brilliantly. She's a wonderful musician. And Dame Mary Bevan, I'm gonna call her. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Dame Mary Bevan. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so Mary's a great friend and a wonderful musician. And the album really came about because 
there's an area of performing that I absolutely love or uh, a genre of writing, which is obligato writing. For listeners that don't know, obligato writing is, the word obligato comes from, from obligare in Italian, which basically means that the musical line is in some way indispensable. You have to have it there. With obligato writing, you, it comes with a vocal line. So the vocal line is a given. The obligato line is the instrumental line. So the idea is that the instrumental line and the vocal line complement each other, almost like a duet. So you have two interweaving melodic lines, both of which are of equal importance. A great example of this is Ebarmadich from The Matthew Passion where it's got this beautiful violin solo, stunning vocal line sung by um, alto or countertenor. But within that, each line, Bach writes it so that each line complements each other. The vocal line sings something, the violin comments on it. The violin suggests something, the vocal line responds to it. It's call and response. And I became really excited by obligato writing when I first joined the English Baroque soloists. I was having a lot of coaching with uh, Sir John Elliot Gardner, and he invited me to go over to New York with him to launch his book, Music in the Castle of Heaven. And as part of that launch, we, myself, uh, with a harpsichordist and cellist and a singer, performed a lot of obligato arias alongside extracts from his book. So he would talk about Bach and his life and certain works, cantatas, and we would play extracts from these cantatas. That really opened up the world of obligato writing to me, something that I'd never even considered was was really a genre in its own right. I love performing chamber music with friends. I love making music with other people. I love performing solo, but for me, making music is about making it with other people and hearing what everyone else has got to say and how better to do that than within chamber music. So I knew I wanted to, to um, make a, an album where everyone was pretty much equal. And I'd stumbled across these nine German arias because I do a lot of recitals uh, with different singers. I love working with singers because I love comparing bow stroke with the use of text, actually, articulation. And I find it really fascinating. The use of the breath is almost like the bow in a way. Exactly. Absolutely. The breath is like the bow and the, the speaking is like articulation. So I stumbled across these nine German arias and thought they were absolutely stunningly beautiful. So I'd started incorporating these into recitals. But the thing that was sort of frustrating me was that there were no... There are some fantastic recordings out there of the nine German arias. Emma Kirkby did one in the 80s. Carolyn Sampson has another beautiful one, but there hasn't been one that's been done for many, many years. And I was becoming frustrated that there was nothing sort of current in the market, so to speak. And I thought, I love these so much. There's a space here for that. So the album helped me combine my two loves of chamber music, working with singers and obligato writing, basically. And that's how the album came about. So Sweet Stillness is centred around these nine German arias. The arias are set to texts by Barthold Heinrich Brockers, who was a great friend of, of Handel's um, from their Haller days. And intertwined throughout this album, I've also incorporated some violin sonatas. So we've, we've decided to uh, group the arias in sets of three. So three uh, German arias, violin sonata, three, violin, three, sort of thing, just to split it up. Now, Handel never intended for these arias to all be performed as one big bump. I mean, it's 
just a bit too much. They weren't intended to be sat down and performed as that. They are church-style cantatas. So much like Bach was doing when he was Thomas, um, like you know, Kapellmeister at Thomas Kirche or um, Nikolai Kirche, he was, you know, they served a purpose in the service. So they're religious cantatas. It was really the first time, actually, that Handel had um, used religious texts to talk about nature. And so that's why these are quite kind of pioneering works. And they're just really, really exciting. I think if you manage to listen to the album, for the listeners out there, it's on Spotify and, and Apple. But it's a wonderful collaboration not only of these texts by Brockers, the music by Handel, but in the album I've also decided to include a lot of friends actually in it as well. So I'm very close with Mary and I've got a wonderful continuo team behind me. So I've got Tom Foster on harpsichord and organ, Sergio Buccelli on Theorbo, who's fantastic, and Alexander Rolton on the cello. It's a killer continuo team. And then to make this even fresher, I decided to do brand new translations of the German texts. So a great friend of mine, Jonathan Rees, is a brilliant Baroque cellist, but he's also a language specialist. And he has retranslated all of Brockes's translations. But instead of into poetry, he's done them into prose, which makes them much more manageable. Each aria is just about three lines of text. So you really can capture the essence of each aria just by reading the lines. There's no sort of weird language that you get in these things like pearl is the river shore wave yeah very archaic language <laughs> exactly it's you know things like the river shines beautifully in the sun uh, sort of thing it's so you really the text really these translations make the text pop out of the page and john has also done some beautiful artwork that corresponds with that as well which captures the essence of each aria and a wonderful friend of mine, um, Yulia Kuhn, who's a brilliant Baroque violinist, has also um, transcribed all the new translations into calligraphy as well. So it's been a really interdisciplinary project and one that is born around friendship. And it's been so exciting. And it's gone down very well so far um, on the radio and in the um, Baroque and classical community. And um, it's just been amazing to be able to bring these works to life in a new and exciting and, and fresh way. So I urge you, not because of my recording, but I urge you to listen to these arias because they are really incredibly beautiful and Handel's writing is something that we don't really see. This writing is something that we don't really see elsewhere. He Handel was such an operatic composer. We're used to this writing because of Bach. We're used to listening to obligato writing in church music but Handel had never really done this before and that's why these arias are so unique yeah yeah and styles in historically informed performance have definitely changed over the years and when I listen to your recording it's very fresh it's very youthful it sparks it fizzes you know particularly with those violin sonatas as well the g minor that second movement you just you just run with it and I love it yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, it was about bringing this music to life. I hate this word accessible, but I want people who maybe will not have not listened to classical music or are not particularly into Baroque music um, just to listen to this or stumble across this album and just pick one track and think that says something to me. For me, the nine German arias, it all goes back to the text 
and bringing the text to life. And that's why making these arias really vibrant was incredibly important to us as a team. We stripped back each aria and we decided to pick an essence for each thing. So really just to create a sound world. So Susur Stiller, which is about the calm um, that awaits us um, in eternity after the kind of futile labours of life, that is a completely different sound world. We use an organ. I'm muted. It's very hushed and quiet and soft and just very, you can almost feel it in the air. It's a, it's just a, it's like a magical world that we try to create. And hopefully each aria has a different essence that when you, you listen to each one, they stick out or they stand out as standalone arias as well. And talking of essences, I know that one of your big passions outside of music are cocktails, <laughs> cocktail making. So I came across that wonderful series that you did with the Kono Hotel, Musical Mixology. Tell me a bit more about that. That's such a, a wonderful project and I think a really great way, again, to introduce classical music, I think, to a, a new audience. Exactly. Um, that's how that really came about. I love cocktails. I love what goes into making a cocktail, into mixology. And I've got a great friend called Ago Peroni, who's head of mixology at the Connaught Bar in London, um, which is one best bar in the world for the last three years. So it really is the best bar in the world. And he's the best mixologist in the world, arguably. Incredible. Um, we became great friends. He loves music. He's come to lots of my concerts. And in lockdown, obviously, we were all sitting at home, not really knowing what to do. I mean, half of us were just sort of watching Netflix and only looking forward to sort of downing a bottle of wine at 6pm. Um, but I tried to, we came up together with this great idea to take apart what goes into a cocktail and what goes into a piece of music. And for people to look forward to their cocktail hour every day or once a week, we took a cocktail, we decided to not make it too complicated, we wanted people to have the ingredients at home. So let's just take a classic martini, gin or vodka, vermouth, some bitters if you have them, lemon twist or olive, that is literally all you need, and, and a stirring glass. But even if you don't have a stirring glass, you can literally use a glass and a spoon. It's, you know, obviously if you want to do it properly, you have a, you know, beautiful stirring glass or a shaker, but it was really for anybody to do at home. So we take apart the elements that go into a cocktail, the history behind each cocktail. So where did the martini originate from? What's the history behind it? What's the history behind how gin was made, how vermouth was made? I would then compare that to a piece of music. So take apart the elements of a piece of music, what goes into it. Maybe, maybe choose some essences like the stirring in the stirring glass being very elegant, very smooth, legato, therefore picking a piece that's very legato phrases. I mean, as you know, you can pretty much find comparisons between anything. You can find a comparison between a kitchen tablecloth and um, candlesticks if you want to. You know, you, you, can, you, can, you can compare and contrast all these things. But for me, it was about bringing the cocktail audience to music, classical and contemporary. So we would talk about the essences of the cocktail, of the music. Ago would do a little masterclass on how to make the cocktail at home. People would make the cocktail and then I would perform the corresponding piece so that they could sip the cocktail while I was 
playing the piece to, to really give them the full immersive experience. Um, we were really lucky to form a, a great relationship with Fever Tree Tonic, um, well, Fever Tree Beverages, really. They're such a fantastic company. Gin is a big love of mine, and so Fever Tree for me is really the best tonic out there, or the best mixer. Their slogan is a mix with the best. And I know somebody at Fever Tree, so we did a wonderful brand campaign with them last year called Mix with the Best Musical Mixology, and we picked three cocktails as part of a campaign. Um, it's available on the Fever Tree website on YouTube. If you look up Musical Mixology Fever Tree, it's, it's on there. And it takes three cocktails and three pieces of music. And again, is shows how they compare and contrast. So yeah, again, it's bringing music to the masses and just breaking down these barriers that a lot of people, I think, might encounter within classical music that they feel that it's not for them. But actually, everybody has should have equal rights and access to classical music if that's something that they're interested in. So it was just about bringing that to everybody. Wonderful, wonderful. So yeah, we'll definitely put a link to that in the description box so that everybody can go and watch that wonderful series. Well, Davina, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Annabelle. It was absolutely wonderful to come on the podcast and to chat about so many exciting things. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Talking Classical Podcast. I do hope you enjoyed listening. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or other major outlets where you get your podcasts. You can also follow the Talking Classical Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube or the Talking Classical blog. If you have a moment, please would you leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts as this will help to increase visibility and get the podcast to more people. Many thanks for listening once again and I hope that you'll be able to join me for another podcast very soon. Bye for now.